You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I'd never heard of this faggot before this weekend. Okay, wait. Before I go on a point of order, I don't use fag as an insult. I call people I like fags. A lot of my friends are fags. My fag friends like to call me a fag. And there's nothing I like more than when the fag whose dick I'm sucking calls me a fag. I call people I like fags. I also call people I don't like fags. So me calling someone a fag isn't by itself an insult. It doesn't tell you whether or not I like someone. This fag? I do not like this fag. George Santos is a gay Republican. This Santos guy, this Santos bag, is a Trump Republican because all Republicans are Trump Republicans now. And Santos and his pharmacist fiance partied with Don Jr. and Ivanka and Rudy and Vanilla Ice at Mar-a-Lago on New Year's Eve. And then Santos posted photos of himself and his pharmacist fiance partying at Mar-a-Lago to his wide open Instagram and Twitter accounts. Santos isn't well-known, I didn't know he was before this weekend, but he's not a private citizen. This fag's a politician. He ran for a House seat in 2020 in New York's 3rd Congressional District, a race he lost by 13 points. And he's already announced that he's running again for the same seat in 2022, and he's started raising money. He's not going to win, but grifters got a grift. So it makes sense that the New York Times would note Santos's presence at the Mar-a-Lago Super Spreader New Year's Eve bash. I mean, this fag wants to represent New York and Congress. The New York Times covers congressional races in New York and elsewhere. And it might, I don't know, interest New Yorkers who read the Times to know that this gay who wants to represent them in Congress was out there violating safety protocols and putting himself at risk and everyone he comes into contact with at risk, putting his constituents at risk, all to suck up to that loser Donald Trump. And now Santos, this faggot, is having a meltdown. He's claiming he had to grab his fiance and his four dogs and flee their home and go into hiding after the New York Times made the photos that he posted publicly a little more public. Santos posted those photos to his campaign Twitter account, by the way, at Santos for Congress. So he obviously wanted the people who follow him and support him to know he was partying at Corona Largo with Don Jr. He just didn't want everyone to know. Santos is following the Republican playbook here to a T. He's falling down. He's clutching his pearls. He's playing the victim. He also says his fiance, who happens to be a pharmacist again, got fired from his job, which if true, I'm having a really hard time feeling bad about. A lot of people who go to pharmacies, a lot of people who interact with pharmacists have compromised immune systems. That's why they're at the pharmacy picking up meds. And a pharmacist who doesn't take COVID precautions seriously is not just a danger to himself. He's a danger to the people who show up at his pharmacy, the place where he works. Of course he should be fired. Santos, like all Republicans, is claiming he's being persecuted. What he's being is held accountable for his actions. You would think a member of the party of personal responsibility, as the Republicans like to call themselves, could get behind that. Over on Instagram, Gays Over COVID was holding gay circuit queens accountable by posting or by reposting photos and videos originally posted by gay men partying in Puerto Vallarta over New Year's Eve. 
a party boat full of these gays, some of whom are doctors and nurses, people who, like pharmacists, really should know better, wound up capsizing and sinking. No one died when the party boat sank, thank God, so we can all safely laugh about the karma of it all. But some of those fags are going to die or kill someone because they got infected down there this weekend. And for the record, way more straight people have been behaving badly and behaved badly over New Year's Eve. Most of the people at that Mar-a-Lago party were straight. 75 infections have been traced back to a single-packed Christmas church service in North Carolina. Some people love Jesus so much, they seem to want to celebrate his birthday with him in person next year. I think the light we can all suddenly see at the end of the tunnel is causing some of us to lose our resolve, if not our minds. I I get it. We are all exhausted. Some of us are exhausting. But the end of the tunnel, that's a world where enough of us have been vaccinated for all of us to be safe. That's still a long way off. The risk of contracting COVID may be greater now than it has ever been at any other point during the pandemic because so many people are infected. Which means if you drop your guard now, if you're stupid enough to party in Mexico or Mar-a-Lago or worship in a packed church right now, or unlucky enough to come into contact with someone who did, you could wind up being the last person to die in this pandemic or the last person to kill in this pandemic. Don't be that person. Don't be a Santos. Okay, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at www.savagelovecast.com. The Magnum Savage Lovecast, no ads, more guests, more calls, twice as much show. Joe Ellen Naughty joins us on the Magnum, comes back to the Magnum to talk with us about Instagram's new terms of service and what they mean for sex educators and sex workers and sex havers, what they mean for all of us. All that's coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan and uh, Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. This is a quarantine success story. It's a 30-something pet male. I enjoy trying anal play with my partner, and I was alone in my house, and I thought, uh, you know what? I would probably become a better uh, partner and person who is better able to understand and respond to the needs of my partner during anal because that can be a particularly difficult and sensitive time. So um, I went ahead and threw in a vibrating butt plug in my own ass. And I got to say, I hated it. Uh, I did not, I did not enjoy the uh, sensation. I did come. Um, I, I, you know, I used a lot of lube and all that stuff, did all the, did all the smart things, but, um, but just found it kind of distracting and unenjoyable. But the upshot to it was that uh, it did make me better at giving anal pleasure to my partner and, uh, you know, understanding kind of what the different vibrations would do and how they would respond and, you know, just, just what was uh, more enjoyable. And I'm actually uh, laying with her right now. And I think that we would say that it went pretty well, right? Went pretty well. There you go. If I may paraphrase Gandhi, something Gandhi never said, be the butt play you want to see in your relationship. Congratulations. You didn't like that vibrating butt plug too much. Maybe you should have gone with a non-vibrating butt plug the first time you experimented with uh, anal penetration yourself. But good on you, sir, for not asking your female partner to do something that you yourself weren't also willing to do. And it sounds, at least from her voice, like 
somebody had fun. Thank you for calling in and sharing your sex success story every week. Before we get to the problems and the conflicts and the issues and the trauma, we like to share something upbeat, something positive, something that worked before we get to the stuff that isn't working. If you want us to open next week's Lovecast with your sex success story, give us a call and share. Hi, Dan. I'm in my late 30s. I'm married. And my question is that I think that I masturbate in a way that nobody else does. Um, It's always been kind of a weird, shameful thing for me because the only way that I really know how to masturbate is something that I've been doing since I was in kindergarten. (laughs) Basically, I put one um, wrist over the other and kind of lay on top of it. And I don't want to say grind against them because there's really very little movement. It's more of just a, a pressure thing. And I've never shown it to anybody. Um, I'm married. My husband's never seen it. He's asked many times, but I, I think it's really weird and not sexy at all. Um, and I also think that it has kind of ruined me for a lot of quote unquote normal sexual pleasure. Before getting married, I definitely had a long and varied sexual history and the things that work for other people just don't seem to work for me. The vibrators, oral sex, um, if anything, those things can actually be kind of uncomfortable for me. And I guess my question is just, do other people do this? Um, am I just a total freak or is it common? Um, like I said, I'm in my late 30s and I, I feel... <laughs> And have always felt like I'm just kind of the only one. And it's like this weird secret that I have that's kind of ruined my ability to orgasm normally. If you can incorporate it into partnered sex, whatever it is, it hasn't ruined partnered sex for you. If you can enjoy partnered sex without coming, if this is something you need to come, this thing that you need can and could incorporate into partnered sex. If you can enjoy partnered sex without coming, it hasn't ruined partnered sex for you. You carry around this secret and you've attached a lot of shame to it. And I think you need to separate those two things. There's a way in which you are able to achieve orgasm. There's a way in which you've been pleasuring yourself since kindergarten that you know works and you feel bad about it. And so you don't tell your partners about it. And then that becomes something you're withholding. It becomes this shameful secret. It's not something that you should be ashamed of. It would have been great if sex education had started for you age appropriate in childhood and you had been encouraged or you had been informed that masturbating in just one way, just one style over and over and over again for years and years and years can create a kind of sensational dependency. It can carve a really deep groove into the neurons and those pleasure centers that aren't just about you know physical sensations but also about ritual and emotional sensations and attachments and expectations. This works for you because it's always worked for you. You trust that it'll work for you because it has worked for you for so long. And that's made perhaps expanding your repertoire a little harder. And in that you are not alone. There are a lot of people out there who have done the same thing, who have this same quote unquote problem. Now, in some cases it's about carving a deep groove And perhaps if you had varied your masturbatory habits in kindergarten and going forward, you would be able to respond to different kinds of sensation. 
it's also possible, and I think it's the case for some people, that this is what it takes. This is the only thing that works. Even if you had, at age seven, been a little bit more experimental about different sensations when you were masturbating at age seven, as some people do, it's possible you would still be reliant on this one technique because it is the thing that hits the button that gets you off. Okay, if it's either, if you've carved so deep a groove in yourself that carving a new groove is going to require a lot of effort and time and patience and really denial because to carve that new groove in yourself means you don't do this. It means you stop masturbating in this way and you attempt other forms of stimulation and self-pleasure. And if they don't get you off, you don't pivot then in the end to what worked because your body or some part of your reptile brain will just hold out for the sensation that it knows will work and it can just wait you out. And I know I'm anthropomorphizing a whole bunch of (laughs) weird things here, but still that's what happens. Like if you try with a vibrator for a little bit and then get frustrated and pivot to the wrist on wrist pressure, your body's just going to go, okay, 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 okay. Give me what I want. Give me what I want. But if you Try the vibrator, you get close or you get aroused and then you don't pivot. Eventually a new groove will be carved from those nerve endings to the pleasure centers in your brain perhaps and you'll get off or not. I think if you give it a try for six months or a year, really of that kind of disciplined self-denial, it could work. If it doesn't work in that time, I don't think it'll ever work and you should stop trying to make it work. When you say that oral vibrators, they're uncomfortable. I would want to know if those, if you mean those sensations are uncomfortable, uncomfortable physically, or do they create a kind of emotional discomfort, the kind of anticipatory frustration because you know it's not going to work. If you just embrace it, this is how your orgasms work. This is how your body works. Could you enjoy oral? Could you enjoy vibrators as something that's cranking you up for what you're going to do in the end to get you there if you do need this particular sensation to climax? And if you can accept and embrace what works, maybe then you can then enjoy those other things that don't quote unquote work in the sense they don't get you all the way there, but work in the sense that they provide you with physical pleasure, that they're a kind of foreplay. And you can incorporate this into partnered sex. What you're doing is kind of a pressure technique. You're laying on your stomach, you're not grinding, but you're putting pressure on your vulva, on your clitoris, between the mattress, by bearing down, by pressing down against your wrists, against the mattress. You could recreate that exact same pressure sensation, that bearing down sensation, on your husband's forehead, on his knee, on his forearms, on his elbow, perhaps on his hard dick. But you're not going to be able to incorporate your husband into what works for you if you can't be honest with your husband about what works for you. And that means you got to let go of the shame. Whether you've carved a deep groove in yourself or this is what your body was always going to require for you to come, regardless, you need to let go of the shame. You need to show your husband how you masturbate, or tell him how you masturbate. A good tip for people who are embarrassed about their masturbatory routines, their O faces, the position they have to get into, is one way to incorporate your partner into what works for you slowly without feeling too scrutinized just to make it impossible for your partner to scrutinize you. Put a blindfold on your husband and have him lay next to you in bed while you do this. Maybe you could even make out with him while you do this and you don't have to worry about him seeing you in this position that you'd still feel a little 
residual discomfort about it, maybe with some encouragement and time and a dozen orgasms in his presence, even if he can't see what you're doing, then you can take the mask off or take the blindfold off the husband and let him see. And then instead of your wrists, you can use his face. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I have been listening for about a decade, so I've heard you tell plenty of people that their biggest leverage with their families is their presence. So I am really hoping that you have some advice for when that strategy is being used against you. I am a 30-year-old white liberal female living in Texas, and this past summer I went to a Black Lives Matter protest, made several social media posts about Black Lives Matter and defunding the police, and that is when my sister stopped talking to me because her husband is a police officer. Um, I swear I tried to be sensitive to that fact at the time over the summer, and I never said anything at all derogatory about police officers. I really just tried to explain defunding the police and equated it to my own job teaching, saying that education is defunded every single year, and that if teachers were not being held accountable for being inappropriate with students, then I would be out there in the front lines protesting with people. Whatever, I can deal with her not talking to me. My issue here is that um, she's also included her kids in this. And my oldest nephew is a senior in high school, and I have also not been able to get in touch with him since this summer. So they haven't blocked me from any phone numbers or social media. They're just not responding to anything I send. Um, Last week, my nephew turned 18 and I texted him. I called him. I've sent him a birthday present and heard absolutely nothing back. And that one hurts a lot. So, um, I just feel like I don't know what to do anymore because I hate not being able to, um, communicate with them and be in their lives, especially during COVID. Um, I don't want to be the creepy aunt that's just like trying over and over and sending messages saying I love you or whatever, checking in and I'm not wanted. Um, so do I keep trying? Do I just keep letting them know I love them no matter what their mom is saying at home? Um, and try to remember that those kids also have to stay sane while living with my sister. Um, do I go to my sister? I feel like, I don't know, just being too stubborn or it's my ego, but I feel like I should not be the one going to her and like begging her to talk to me and to fix this when I don't think anything's broken except her way of thinking. I just, I really need some advice on what to do. I feel like it's just too hard to keep trying to talk to them and not hear back. I feel like I would be a hypocrite if I didn't acknowledge that I have told people to do to racist relatives to do to Trump voting relatives who won't shut up about it, what your sister's done to you to cut them out of your life in the hopes perhaps that it would induce exactly the kind of psychic pain that you're experiencing right now, which might push them to reassess their racist shit or their homophobic shit or their transphobic shit or their Trump voting shit and weigh what it's costing them, the relationships with their family members versus what it's gaining them. And there's actually a subreddit on Reddit of people whose relationships with their families have been destroyed because parents and cousins or aunts or siblings have been lost to the QAnon conspiracy theory. And all of these people have had to essentially cut these lunatic family members out of their lives. And in a few cases, you see the lunatic family members eventually, in a few rare cases, come around 
They begin to see through the conspiracy in part because of what it's cost them. And I have endorsed that practice. So here we are with the shoe on the other foot politically with a kind of right wing relative cutting the liberal out and inducing this kind of psychic pain in the hopes of, I don't know what is your sister hoping that you'll come around, that you'll disavow your support for the black lives matter movement, or is your sister just going to cut you out of her life and the lives of her children permanently to punish you eternally for this ideological sin. I don't know what's going on in your sister's head. There's not a lot that you can do, though, except what you've done, as painful as it might be to continue to do what you've done, which is to reach out to them occasionally, let them know that you're thinking of them, that you still love them, and that when they're ready to reestablish this relationship with you, you're open to reestablishing that relationship, to reestablishing contact. And at least for now, while things are as heated as they are now, you probably won't get a response. And that will hurt each and every time. So you might want to limit the number of times you open yourself up to that particular kind of hurt. Text message on a birthday, sending a card, being the bigger person, letting them know. Do it rarely. And brace yourself at least for the next... 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, not to hear from them, not to get a response. Perhaps from your sister because she is angry, perhaps from your nieces and nephews because they've been ordered to not contact you by their sister. And if your sister is awful, and it sounds like she might be, your nieces and nephews, even if they don't respond now because they fear the wrath of mom, just knowing that you're out there and they can reach out to you if they ever need to. And with that kind of mom, the odds that they will need to are higher. Knowing that they can ups the chances that they will. With that kind of mom, your nieces and nephews might need somewhere to run away to at some point. And you're having reached out on birthdays for now, even without them responding, lets them know that you are that person that they can, when they want to, when they need to, get in touch with. And that you will be open to them and you will welcome them back into your life. This really sucks. And, you know, I do think there are certain problems with the expression defund the police. I'm from a cop family. Like, like the politicos are saying, if you have to back up and explain what your slogan means after you chant it, it's probably not the best slogan and you're going to alienate people. And what I've found has worked in some conversations that I've had with family members when I've been asked to explain what the fuck people mean by defund the police is that all of my life, since I was five years old, I have listened to cops in my family complaining about being sent out to be a couples counselor, to be a mental health crisis manager, to do all sorts of things that are not police work. And what defund the police, and perhaps we need a better slogan than that, meant was stop paying police to go out and do what social workers or community organizations or couples counselors should be doing. Maybe take some money away from the police to fund these other things, to take some of the burden off the police, some of the expectations that we've heaped on police. And that has helped. That has helped open some eyes with some people that I have spoken to about it because of my own personal experience being from a cop family, listening to what I've had to listen to cops say 
perhaps you've already said all of that to your sister when you explained what it meant, what defund the police meant to you. So continue to reach out, continue to send those birthday cards, perhaps those gifts, perhaps those text messages on significant days. Brace yourself for now that you're not going to get a response and live in hope that one day, if not your sister, then at least your nieces and nephews will come around and reach back out to you. Hey, Dan. So I've been with my husband for 12 years. We now have two kids, a two and a half year old and a six month old. And I mean, our sex life was pretty good before kids. We weren't super adventurous. We were talking about maybe going down that road and, you know, involving other people at some point, like doing adventures together. But then we got pregnant and uh, that hasn't happened. (laughs) But um, anyway, and now, you know, I'm six months and six months into the the second um, baby. And I just, I feel really terrible because I have zero sexual desire whatsoever. And I I think with my first child, I still kind of force myself to do maintenance sex, um, like maybe once a week. And, you know, it's not like it's terrible. Like I enjoy it once I'm really into it, but it takes a lot to get me into it. And when he initiates, I remember with the first kid as well, there was very little desire and that really didn't turn around until I stopped breastfeeding at 18 months. Anyways, here we are with number two. And again, I just, I have zero desire. And honestly, I can't even bring myself to do quote unquote, like maintenance sex. And I just like, is that something that I really need to be putting more effort into? It's again, a long-term relationship. I know there's going to be ebb and flow, but I just have this huge sense of guilt and, and we've talked about it and like, he seems understanding and it's just, it makes things really hard, especially right now. <laughs> um, and we can't seem to explore other intimacy either. Just, I think he sort of equates, you know, touch and closeness as leading towards sex. And so I just don't even bother doing any of, of that sort of stuff. Am I obligated here to really make more of an effort <laughs> to have sex before <clears throat> I stop breastfeeding, which could be another year? You need to give yourself a break. And you need to take your husband at his word. You say that he seems fine with it. You've had conversations about having the libido right now, not being interested in sex, not having the energy with a two-and-a-half-year-old and a a six-month-old child in the house, even for the maintenance sex you managed to have after the first baby. And that is all completely and perfectly understandable. And your husband is telling you that he gets it and that it's okay. And I think you need to take him at his word. Give yourself a break. And I think you need to get more comfortable with the idea of physical intimacy and have a conversation with your husband about wanting to be physically intimate, but you fear his touch right now because you fear his touch is backed up by expectations that any form of cuddling or intimacy or touch is uh, potentially going to lead to sex and it's not right now. And so you don't want to feel like you're teasing him or feel like you're rejecting him and potentially adding to his frustration right now. So you've got into this trap. You've painted yourself into this corner emotionally where you're not just rejecting him sexually but rejecting all intimacy, shutting down all touch. And that's really going to put you both at a serious disadvantage in another year when you stop breastfeeding, when you wean your new infant and your libido – 
comes roaring back as it did after you stopped breastfeeding your first baby. And if things are awkward because you've lost that language, that physical language, that language of, of touch and intimacy and cuddling that's not necessarily foreplay, that's not leading up to any sex, that doesn't come bundled with sexual expectations, yeah, you're going to have a lot further to crawl back from at that point. So it is in your husband's own best interests when you welcome his touch, when you welcome intimacy, not to try to upgrade that to sex. It's in his own long-term best interest. And I think that the husband who understood you and got it when you had the conversation about your libido being in the toilet right now will understand that too and get that too. I think maintenance sex is a real thing. I'm in a long, long, long long-ass term relationship myself. Maintenance sex happens in long-term relationships. And I remember when we were parents of a young child, there was maintenance sex that went both ways. Neither of us were breastfeeding, obviously. We're both men. But there was maintenance sex that went both ways. And I get it. Maintenance sex doesn't have to be unloving. It doesn't have to be grudging. We saw it as a kind of a rain check. Like, this is the kind of sex we have the energy for now, but this is an indication, this is a promise, really, this kind of sex now, that we will have good sex in the future when we have more time and energy. But maintenance sex isn't always intercourse. And maintenance sex doesn't always require a lot of the person who's doing the maintaining, the person who is doing the indulging. If you guys are able to be intimate, if you're able to hold each other and touch each other, and he wants to have a wank, assisted masturbation is a form of maintenance sex. Even if all you're doing is holding that person and maybe putting an arm around them, playing with their tits, whispering a few dirty things in their ears about all the crazy sex you're going to have once you have your energy back, once your infant is weaned, although that's not particularly sexy, dirty talk. You might want to leave the infant out of it, but you can talk about the sex you're going to have in the future. And there's potentially a lot of great sex in your future. It's kind of a cliche of the organized heterosexual swinging community that a lot of people come into it when their children are grown or when their children are tweens. That's when people seem to have the emotional energy and sometimes the emotional security to branch out in the way that you and your partner were talking about branching out sexually involving other people before you became pregnant that first time. So that is still a possibility for you even though your parents now and it's likelier to be possible for you if you can sustain your sexual connection through this drought, this predictable drought. You have a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a six-month-old. You're not going to be having a lot of sex right now. You knew that going in. He knew that going in. And if he didn't know that going into the first child, he knew that going in for the second child. You just have to hold on. He needs to masturbate a little more, take care of himself a little bit more often. You need to have an understanding that welcoming his touch, laying together, holding each other, that's not an invitation right now for him to try to upgrade to full sex. But you welcome and you can be there for him every once in a while for a little assisted masturbation. And you're not expected to do anything except be there and be present for him while he masturbates, while you assist him in a little masturbation to tide him over until the weaning and the return because it came back the last time. So it is the predictable return in a short year, in one short year of your libido post-breastfeeding. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Joellen Noddy, writer, sex educator, author of The Monster Under the Bed, Sex, Depression, and the Conversations 
we aren't having. Before we get to the topic that I wanted to have you on to talk about, you're a sex educator, and one of the platforms where you do a lot of sex education is Instagram. Why have so many people who are sex educators taken to Instagram? I think for a lot of people, I mean, it exploded in popularity, but for a lot of the sex educators that use it, it's a great way to give people like digestible bites of sex education, of things that we maybe didn't learn in school because we've had abstinence only for 30 years now. And Mm -hmm. it's been like a fun way to bring that to people. And I think that um, a lot of audiences have really connected with being able to see the face of the person and cute little memes and whatever. And there's a lot of people, I think, with niche sexual orientations or identities or practices who are also on Instagram and able to do important education uh, about kind of best practices. You know, we call it sex education. A lot of it is relationship education. Yes. Sex is easy. (laughs) You know, any idiot can have sex. Any idiot can make a baby. Bristol Palin made a couple. (laughs) The, The sex part of sex education could really be covered in like... 20 minutes. Right. It's everything else about consent and negotiation and safety and how to treat another human being with respect and decency. That's the stuff that you can spend a lifetime learning about. And that's what I see sex educators doing on Instagram. Well, and also I think there's a lot of educators who just by merit of being bigger people, disabled people, people who are not white and don't fit the typical like Eurocentric beauty things that were taught are good, they can get in front of an audience on somewhere like Instagram and people can say that person looks like me. Usually the people I see are thin and pretty and white and, and it makes me feel like sex isn't for me, but Mm -hmm. this person looks like me has, you know, conditions I relate to. And now I feel like sex is a place that has room for me. And this person isn't necessarily straight or or cis. Uh, and I think that's important too. And, yeah. and, you know, I think one of the lessons of my career, my life is that you can learn things from people who don't look like you. Yeah. Cause I've been talking to straight people about their sex lives, uh, and making, I think, germane observations, yeah. uh, and sharing with them insights about heterosexuality that I sort of, or, or learning things about heterosexuality because you can learn something about being straight from being gay, from yeah. knowing more about being gay people. So meeting different kinds of people, living different kinds of lives, that goes on on Instagram too in sex yeah. education places. So it's not always about that person looks like me. Sometimes it's about that person that is person nothing not, like me. And I never would have been exposed to them otherwise. Yeah. And and so I wanted to have you on because there's a roiling controversy out there on Instagram right now about changes to the terms of service yeah, and people are fearing a purge. Can you walk my listeners who haven't heard about this through it? So stuff like this has been kind of coming in waves to various forms of social media. And a lot of it goes back to legislature that was introduced to protect against human trafficking. And the latest one has been child porn. And these are all things we agree are bad and we need protection from, but it turns into a thing with the internet where like, suddenly if your account mentions sex, it's flagged. If your account um, has, any, one of the big ones right now is the updated terms of service. Say so you can't show, um, like if you're a pole dancer, you can't show your dancing on Instagram. If you're a pole dancing instructor with a school for pole dancing, that's fine. But if you're a dancer in a club, 
not okay. So if you're an exercise instructor doing pole dancing, you can show your whole routine and it can be suggestive and explicit and it's okay. But if you're a pole dancer, if you're a sex worker, if you're a stripper, you can do the same routine even on the same pole and Instagram's going to ban it and ban you. And that's what people are worried about. Uh, Sex workers are being driven off the internet. Basically, Twitter is the only place that people can share sexually explicit content. A lot of people I know who are leaving Instagram are worried they're going to be driven off Instagram because because of their new sex negative terms of service are saying, come follow me on Twitter. And Twitter's becoming like the last place online where people feel safe. Now, I've been hearing a lot about the purge that's coming, but I haven't seen a lot of people's accounts purged. So I've seen a couple go away and then come back. And um, a thing I've seen is people have to like change their handle. So before it was like sex with Stephanie. And now it's like Stephanie talks love because if the word sex is there, they're coming for you. And so it's been, I honestly expected to wake up on December 20th to like half the accounts I follow gone. Mm -hmm. And it's been a bit more bit by bit. And a bit more like, okay, now this person's missing. Okay, now they've changed some things and they've come back. What is the deal? (sighs) You know, and we need to like lay this uh, (laughs) shit at the door where where it belongs. Instagram is owned by Facebook. Facebook, yeah. Facebook is changing Instagram. Sex workers have already, you know, because of Fosta-Sesta, anti-trafficking legislation, which identified all sex work as trafficking trafficking. and all trafficking as sex work when it's actually 70 plus percent of people who are doing forced labor aren't doing sex work. They're working in restaurants or they're working in fields, but nobody talks about them because it's not sexy to talk about them. And there's just this move being driven by Facebook to drive all adult conversations about sex off of social media. And I can't understand it. I I don't get what the end goal here is. You know, we're being driven onto social media. Facebook in particular has been responsible for destroying the print media and and traditional media where there were some conversations that were possible about sex. And now that they've sort of wrapped it all up and acquired everything, they're ruling sex out of the conversation – for why? Does anyone know why they're doing this? I think to kind of get your head around why, looking at the controversy that happened last week where a New York EMT was found to have an OnlyFans account and the newspaper stories positioned it as like, oh my God, she's doing this thing as opposed to we don't pay our EMTs enough to live. So she's right. But there's this mentality that if somebody's sex or somebody's talking about sex or there's overt sex, it's somehow tainted and wrong. And you don't want this person working on your family because they have sex. I And I can't really identify it more than that. And what's weird is Facebook is kind of late to the game on this. Like Tumblr eradicated sex content two years ago. My Twitter account lived under a state that they don't acknowledge exists called shadow ban for about a year Mm. and a half, where if you searched me, you didn't find me. I wasn't there. And so we're watching people bounce around these different places. And Patreon is even one. Lots of people uh, go to Patreon because that's the way people can support their work and stuff. Um, My account kept getting flagged because my book has the, the word sex in the title. 
And I kept having to be like, no, seriously, I'm, I'm just depressing. I just talk about depression so much. Are we just in the middle of a sex panic where yes. everything <laughs> associated with sex, people, conservatives or the people running these companies want to identify it as on a continuum that leads to trafficking exactly. and child sex abuse. So any conversation about sex is going to open the door to child rape and body snatching. I think there's also a classist struggle in play at play right now because a lot of people are going to OnlyFans and sex education and sex work as ways to support themselves. And that seems to anger people, right? That that you can successfully set up an OnlyFans account and that will sustain you seems to anger some people. Like it seems they feel it's very wrong. And so they want to wipe all the sex out of everything. So just in case anybody out there from Facebook or Instagram is listening, can we talk about how important it is for sex education, for sex educators to be on the same, to be on the same fucking internet, to be on the same platforms as the pornography that is out there? People complain that a lot of young people get their sex education from porn, but then want to shut down good and responsible voices on the internet that are countering the kind of sex ed people get from porn with the rest of the information that people need. Now, sometimes people get good information from porn. Yeah. You know, what? sometimes not everything we learn from porn is terrible. Please don't choke people because you saw it in fucking porn without their consent. But it's not all bad. You know, some people find out who they are or find out they're not alone in their desires because they find porn that speaks to them, that represents them in the same way you can be represented in other ways. But we want as much good information, a much good education, uh, enough good sex educators kind of running interference yeah. around the porn, complicating it, interrogating it online in the same platforms where people are consuming pornography. Do I mean, I, we're just nodding at each other now. Do we not believe that? And, and shouldn't Facebook endorse that? Well, and we live in this world, and this is what's been amazing to me about the world for the last uh, 20 years. We've gotten constantly increasing access to streaming internet porn and constantly decreasing access to actual sex education. And so, of course, that's porn is where people are going. But when you give people this like middle ground of fun social media, digestible sex education, it kind of helps to balance that out. And it helps people not feel like the only place they can get sex information from is porn. And then they feel like if they have to use lube, they're broken and they should have easy anal all the time. It, like there's, there's the education that can help them kind of navigate that. And to take that away pushes us further towards what people don't want. And all of this legislature keeps pushing people who talk about sex further underground, which is counterproductive. So Instagram's new terms of service that everybody was preemptively worried about uh, went into effect on December 20th. There hasn't been the purge that a lot of people feared. That doesn't mean that purge isn't coming because the new terms of service make it possible for Instagram to shut down anybody who's really talking about sex on their platform. And so as we, you know, careen into the new year, into 2021, what should we watch out for? You know, they've got the new terms of service. A lot of the sex educators who are worried that they would be driven off the platform are still there. What will be the first signs that Instagram might be enforcing these new terms of service and shutting these important voices down? You know, I've been seeing it just like one account at a time with people being like, okay, I'm back now. And I'm like, oh, I didn't realize you were gone. 
And that's kind of, I think, what's more insidious about how it's happening. It's like one account at a time and you're not really noticing it and then they're gone. So if you have a sex educator whose work you love, who you're finding really helpful, follow them other places, support their work, sign up for their mailing list, whatever. That way you can know if they get taken down, you can still support them. They can still function as a sex educator for you because right now, like we can't trust that the accounts aren't going to go away. And I think that's the scariest part about it. In a way, it would have been less scary if it was this like apocalyptic thunderclap, but it's this slow boiling frog scenario that's a bit scarier. It is insidious the way these giant platforms have made us so dependent on social media to connect and then want to narrow the scope of human experience and rule things out of the conversation that are really important in our lives. Sex is hugely important. And can be hugely consequential, which is why we want people to have as much good information, as much representation uh, as they can, as they need to have and on these same platforms. And so I'm watching the situation with Instagram unfold with trepidation. I'm glad that voices like yours, like uh, Lena, like other people I follow, other sex educators I follow online, uh, haven't been disappeared. But I really worry yeah. that they will be. Yeah, I, a lot of people are taking the word sex out of everything. I've been promoting a book with the word sex in the title for a year now. So I haven't taken that step because it's just too much. So who knows how long I'm here for. <laughs> Where can people find you on Instagram? You can find me at Joe Ellen Notte. That's just my whole name. J-O-E-L-L-E-N-N-O-T-T-E. Instagram, Twitter, all the places. And your new book, The Monster Under the Bed, Sex, Depression, and the Conversations We Aren't Having. We had you on the show to talk about yes. your new book. It's terrific. I hope people pick it up and read it. And follow you on these platforms and scream and yell if you should suddenly disappear. I would appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm a bi woman. And like uh, most of us, I've been in quarantine for what feels like 50 billion years. Um, I haven't had sex during the pandemic. So I'm trying to, um, I'm single, so I'm trying to not be out there dating. I'm trying to stay home. Before the pandemic started, I had a great friends with benefits situation, and that person introduced me to the joys of having my ass eaten, um, which was new to me, but I really enjoy it. So my question basically is, do you have any recommendations for how I can have that same kind of experience or a similar one at home by myself? until it's safe to go out and um, hook up with other people again. The only thing that's kind of come close in this time has been I got a bidet, not for this purpose, but it just turned out that it can be kind of enjoyable when done just right. But I don't know if that's a thing or if that's like weird or risky. But basically, I'm just wondering if you have any other suggestions because I really am only into like the rimming kind of aspect when I have a partner, not really putting anything in there. So butt plug doesn't really do anything for me and it's not enjoyable. Um, same for a dildo or anything else like that. So would love to know if you have any suggestions for me. I might have just the sex toy that you're looking for, but it kind of depends on what type of rimming we're talking about here. Are we talking about just somebody gently licking 
your butthole, or are we talking about somebody who seems to be trying to take your tonsils out with their tongue through your ass? If it's the gentle licking you miss, and I suspect it might be because you say you're not really into penetration and the way some people rim, it can feel a little bit like you're being penetrated by their tongue. There is a line of sex toys called the Squeal, S-Q-W-E-E-L. I call them the pocket altar boy. It's basically this rotating wheel of little tiny pink tongues that simulates a sensation on the clit. They're mostly designed for the clit of rapid fire licking. And if you lube these little tongue lit things up, it can really, according to the people I know who have clits who've experimented with the squeal, it can really feel like an expert clit licker is going to town on your clit. There is no reason, there's nothing stopping you from getting yourself a pocket altar, excuse me, a squeal and using it instead of on your clit, on your butt. Of course, if you use it on your butt, you need to thoroughly clean it before you use it anywhere near your clit or your labia. So if you get one that you want to use on your butt, you might want to make that just a butt toy because although I'm sure they can be clean, there's a lot of nooks and crannies and tongues and ridges on a squeal. And uh, yeah, you might want to err on the side of butt only if you're going to use your squeal, your pocket altar boy, as a butt toy. Hi, Dan, a 33-year-old straight male from Canada. I ended like a 10-year relationship a while back and entering the dating world now, and uh, it's actually going like really well. I had heard like a lot of horror stories about online dating, but so far it's actually been like a huge ego boost, so that's been nice. Um, the thing I'm wondering about is how to ethically go about dating multiple people at the same time. So like I'm not like I'm not looking for sex. I'm looking for a long term relationship. But how much information do I owe the women I'm seeing, and like how I go about things? Like it kind of feels like I'm I've got like six or seven women that I'm auditioning, and I get to pick a winner. Like it's that like that feels gross, but that's kind of how it's shaping up. So I, I just don't want to be a dick to these people who I'm genuinely genuinely trying to make a connection with but we'll inevitably not be going forward with eventually, you know, like for most of them. So is it even ethical to see them all at once? What you're talking about doing here, this, that this radical thing is what has historically been referred to as dating. You say not looking for sex, you're looking for a relationship. You're looking for sex and a relationship. You're looking for a romantic relationship that comes with hopefully, ideally a good Sexual connection, sexually compatible. Please prioritize sexual compatibility when you're looking for a long-term romantic partner, particularly if that relationship is going to be sexually exclusive. You're looking for a relationship. And it's people understand that someone that they are just beginning to see or seeing casually may be, at that moment, seeing other people. They probably don't want to be reminded of it, but there's a point in a relationship's arc where it becomes exclusive and implicit in that becoming exclusive is the understanding that prior to that moment when exclusivity was established it was not exclusive and there are people out there who argue that if you are seeing multiple people that's something that you should have to disclose and i wonder if those people have ever been in relationships how would that play out? You're on a first date with somebody and they say, full disclosure, I have a date tomorrow night. I had a date last week and we are not exclusive. You don't need to say that. That's just understood. 
after you make a commitment, after you say your boyfriend and girlfriend or boyfriend and boyfriend or girlfriend or girlfriend, and you either default into the monogamous assumption or opt in, ideally, preferably opt in to exclusivity and monogamy, it's just understood that this person might be at that moment literally auditioning other potential partners. Maybe you'll get picked. Maybe you'll be the one that they cut everybody else loose for. Maybe not. Everybody knows that going in. So you don't have to say that. And not only don't you have to say that, saying that would make you seem like someone who has no emotional intelligence. It would make you seem like someone who doesn't understand how dating works. And one of the things you want in a partner, one of the things that makes you want to go exclusive with someone is that they have good judgment, that they know generally how things work. And somebody telling you on your first date that they don't understand how dating works, yeah, they're telling you that they don't have good judgment, that they have a low emotional IQ and you will be less inclined to want to see them, much less become exclusive with them if they make that kind of disclosure on the first date. So get comfortable with the idea that you are auditioning potential future exclusive romantic partners because that is literally what you're doing and you are not doing anything wrong. Hi, Dan. I have fallen in love during quarantine with a really nice guy. Um, We're both in our mid-20s and I was just hoping that you could give me some insight into our sex life. Um, I've slept with, you know, quite a few different kinds of men, seen quite a few different kinds of dick. And um, one of the things that I've never seen before that I'm seeing with this guy is just like the inability to hold a rock hard erection. And, you know, this, this comes and goes in waves. And it's not always like this, but it is like this often enough that it's noticeable. Um, like it'll just go soft in me a lot. And I'll just get sad and frustrated when he's trying to stick soft cock inside of me i'm just not sure what to do because we have a lot of really nice fun oral sex and we've expanded our he probably expanded his definition of sex a while ago but i have really come to embrace alternative non-piv definitions of sex but like i also want a rock hard dick in me and i'm wondering like if you know anything about younger people and ed and what they're relationship with their dicks could be he is pretty athletic i'm wondering if maybe he has like a low testosterone i've tried to bring up this with him a few times and i feel like i can't tell if it makes it better or worse because i don't want to hurt his confidence and his self-esteem but at the same time i do kind of have this desire of having dick in me and i guess i also have an underlying fear that if this is what's happening at our age of mid-20s, what's going to, you know, happen later in years from now when men's sticks naturally just kind of work less well. So if you have any advice, you know, other than the obvious, try to communicate and try to ask him when he finds it sexy, et cetera. I've done a lot of that, but I'd be happy to hear the whole smartest word of advice again if you've got it. Roughly 10% of men under 30 experience ED. Now, erectile dysfunction can have a physiological cause that can be addressed with medications. It can also be psychological. The guy can just lose his mojo. A dick is a little bit like Tinkerbell, as I like to say. You gotta believe in a guy who's gotten 
inconveniently soft a couple of times, particularly a guy who's gotten shamed about it, can feel anxiety and stress and that can pull him out of the moment sexually. It can cause him to lose his focus and in losing his focus, his mojo. So my question for you, barring some physiological cause, and you say that he's in good shape, is what are you guys doing when he starts to get soft and what is he allowed to do in preparation for penetrating you? Some women have a real hang-up about a guy stroking his own dick before penetration or pulling out, stroking himself for another couple of seconds, getting his erection back to rock-hard status and plunging back in. If you are one of those women who have a problem with that, if you think that you should be the sole cause of his dick getting hard, just being in a room with you naked should be enough for him to obtain, maintain, sustain that rock-hard dick that you'd like him to have, well, you could be contributing to the problem and contributing in a significant way to your own dissatisfaction. You should be encouraging him to stroke himself. You should be encouraging him to do whatever he needs to do in the moment to get that dick hard in a playful, fun, sexy way. So if you're doing that, and I don't know if you're doing that, and I couldn't call you back, if you're doing that, where you know he's not allowed to touch his own dick, or you're going to have a big sad if he strokes himself for a little bit while you guys make out and roll around before he plunges back in. Stop doing that. Something else that might help, again, barring some physiological cause that might be better helped with ED meds, which do work and can work for guys in their 20s as well, is some guys need to be firing on all cylinders erogenously. Some guys need to have their tits played with while they're fucking for that dick to stay hard, or they need to be engaged in dirty talk while they're fucking for that dick to stay hard. You met this guy during the pandemic, so it's been six months, nine months tops that you've been seeing each other. Have you reached the stage of the relationship where you're both really open with each other about your turn-ons, about what works for you, what doesn't work for you? And if you haven't had those conversations yet, please have those conversations now. If it's as simple as when he's fucking you, he just needs you to reach up and play with his nipples to keep him hard, I assume that's something that you would be willing to do to keep him hard, considering how much you like hard dick in you. If there's something extra that you could be doing, some other cylinder that you could be firing on, not just providing the vagina, not just providing the sheath, but providing... The dirty talk, the tit play, the butt plug that he might need to help him get there. Lots of guys who need more than just, you know, a dick in a throat or a dick in a vagina to stay hard and to really enjoy sex, particularly when they're young, have a hard time asking for that. And in many instances, when they have asked, have been shot down or wound up with a partner kind of going to pieces in front of them because they assume, or she, almost invariably, it's usually a woman in this case, assumes that there's something wrong with her or she's not enough if he needs that, whatever that might be, in addition to her. Or that from her in addition to just being, or just providing him with something to penetrate. So encourage him to jack off, to, to stroke himself during sex. Be open and solicitous of him about other things that you can incorporate into your sex play that help to make his dick hard, and continue to pivot. It sounds like when this has happened in the past, you've cheerfully pivoted to non-PIV sex and managed to enjoy yourself. That should always be on the menu when you're having sex with somebody. Whether or not they have an erection, whether or not they have a penis to get erect, pivoting to non-PIV should always be on the menu.
And you know, we shouldn't talk about pivoting to non-PIV because that just suggests that PIV is where you start, that PIV is the standard, that PIV is the goal. And if PIV doesn't happen, you can then pivot to some other consolation prize, sexual activity. PIV, of course, is central for a lot of people, central to their pleasure. It is what a lot of people understand straight sex to be. When you talk about straight sex, people picture PIV. It helps some guys who have issues around obtaining, sustaining, maintaining an erection for PIV not to be always on the menu or always the thing that is going to happen when you're sexual. A lot of guys who have problems obtaining and sustaining an erection, it's about pressure and expectations. They're expected to arrive with that hard dick and everything hinges on them having that hard dick. The sex is going to go well or not go well based on whether or not they can keep that dick hard. And that kind of pressure, those kinds of expectations can create anxiety and performance anxiety makes it really hard for a lot of guys to stay hard. So if you change the expectations, you can paradoxically wind up with a guy who, when he was always expected to come through with the hard dick for PIV, if he's not expected to come through with the hard dick for PIV every time, is likelier to come through with the hard dick for PIV when you're having PIV, when you need and want PIV from him. Hi, Dan, 29-year-old queer woman calling from a big city on the East Coast. I've been sleeping with a very sweet trans guy for about three months now, and the chemistry is fantastic. The sex is super affirming for both of us. We're having a great time. But there is one problem. He's very against the idea of having lesbian sex. And I think he equates dildos to lesbian sex, which, number one, bothers me because everyone uses dildos. doesn't matter if you're a lesbian or not. And he only wants to use his pack-and-play packer for PIV. And for getting his dick sucked, which I'm more than happy to do. But it's just not working for me for for PIV. It's not long enough. It's not very soft. It kind of like moves around. It's just, it's not really working for me. And I don't know how to say this to him without really hurting his feelings. I once, I was like riding him on the couch one time and it just like, it wouldn't stay in. And I was like, it's too short for this position. And He got pretty flustered and was like, this has never been a problem before. And I could tell it really hurt his feelings. He doesn't want to talk about his packer. He tucks it away pretty quickly after I suck him off. And I don't know. I don't know how to navigate this. Like, I know the sex would be so much better and a lot more fun for both of us if we weren't struggling with the packer the whole time. I don't know. Any advice? You've been seeing this guy for three months and it doesn't sound like you enjoy the sex. This guy has kind of put you in a position where you raising, you advocating for yourself sexually, you expressing to him what it is you need and how you would like it is to risk traumatizing him or triggering him. He's ruled this kind of discussion out of bounds because he associates for some reason, a strap on dildo with lesbian sex. So I guess if you don't want to go there, because he ruled there out of bounds, you're just going to have to break up with him or continue to have sex for the rest of your life that you find frustrating and unsatisfactory. I think you should go there. I think you should risk it. I think you can make an argument that there's nothing necessarily lesbian 
about a strap-on dildo or anything more lesbian about strapping on a dildo that's hard in the way you need it to be hard for you to enjoy penetrative sex than there is strapping on a packer that doesn't really work for you. Now, he may be very invested in, he may feel that his packer is an expression, is a part of his body and is imbued with his ideas or his sense or is deeply symbolic of his masculinity. If he can make that leap for a packer, he might be able to make that leap for a dildo, for one dildo that is the hard version of that packer. But he's not going to make that leap if you don't force the issue at the risk of hurting his feelings, at the risk of him ending the relationship. You've expressed some dissatisfaction and he did a kind of typically male thing and said a very typically male thing. He said he has not had this problem with anyone else before and he shifted the blame or the responsibility or the failure onto your shoulders. How many times have we heard men do that to women? I've never had this problem with anybody before about her not being able to climax from PIV alone or him losing his erection during sex, a cis guy losing his erection during sex. I've never had a problem with anybody before. It's a very male thing to say. And when men say this thing, we who give sex advice typically advise women to push back against it, to not allow him, if it's not your fault, to make it your fault. If the sex isn't working or the sex doesn't work and there's no way to address it or talk about it, if you can't give any feedback, they can't hear any criticism, if they can't listen to you calmly explain what your needs are and figure out a way together that those needs can be met, there's no hope for this relationship. So I would urge you to have this conversation to tell him what it is you need and to encourage him to perhaps think differently about what a strap-on dildo is. It's not necessarily about lesbian sex. And who cares if it was mostly about lesbian sex or mostly used by lesbians? Straight women strap on dildos and fuck their male partners. I saw some gay porn recently that a friend made where he strapped on, even though he's a cis guy with a dick, he strapped on a dildo and fucked somebody else with a much bigger dick than his dick because he wanted to have a giant dick for that guy. Lots of different types of people strap on dildos for lots of different types of reasons. He should be able to wrap his head around that. And maybe potentially losing you will be the incentive that he needs to start wrapping his head around that. Hey, Dan. So two years ago, via online dating, I met a man who is 17 years older than me. I'm currently 27. And at the time when we met, admittedly, I was really just looking for attention and just to be, you know, consensually used and kind of just have someone to dote on me just for a microsecond. So the first time I went over to his place, that was my intention to have a, you know, one and done hookup, never talk again, and just go from there. And mostly this was because of our age difference. I was 25 at the time, and I just couldn't even fathom having any type of future with him. And well, so we did fuck that night and the next day. It was really great sex. But to my surprise, we also got along really well, like remarkably well. I don't think I've ever clicked with a man that quickly. And we actually both commented on it in that first meeting because it just almost felt serendipitous. All that said, the next day, I was still determined not to pursue anything. I could not wrap my mind around a future still, given that I just shut it down from the get-go. And that was, in fact, two years ago, 
the last time we had ever fucked. First and last time. But fast forward to today, and he's still one of my closest friends. We see each other regularly, less now because of COVID, but we still talk, you know, weekly. And, you know, in the first few months after we initially met, he definitely made it known that he was interested in more. um, And I repeatedly rejected him. (laughs) But we were able to build a really solid friendship with a mildly flirty streak woven throughout. But he really is just one of my dearest friends. By now, it might be pretty obvious where this call is going. But lately, I can't stop wondering if he and I are actually meant to be together. I was in a relationship earlier this year, and that's actually when I started thinking about it with my friend, just comparing how he would be a better partner than my boyfriend at the time was. And I'm just at a point where I really think that my friend and I could be something great. So Dan, I know your advice on romantically propositioning friends to give them a way out ahead of time and welcome the no. Um, But do you have any advice in the meantime for how to shift the energy back to him seeing me as sexually desirable, like he first did, and not just his platonic friend of the past couple years? I know I'm going to have to be the one to initiate the conversation. I can't just drop subtle hints because of the amount of times I've turned him down, but I'm still worried that this will just catch him off guard and he won't even be able to picture me in that way anymore. I guess I'm just wondering if there's some pre-work I can do to maybe start shifting perceptions a bit. You ask if there's a way to gently shift perceptions, when what you need to do is just go ahead and drop that bomb. Two years ago when you met this guy, he was interested in you romantically, and you were interested in him too. And you let a number, you let an age gap convince you that it couldn't possibly work out so you had to smother it in its crib. And now you realize that that was a mistake. He let you know a couple of years ago that he was interested in more. He was interested in you romantically, would like to continue to see you. And so the the ball's in your court. It's been in your court for a long time, for 24 months. Go ahead and lob it the fuck back. He may have moved on. He may not see you as a potential romantic partner anymore, or he could, I'm mixing metaphors like crazy here. He could be carrying a torch and carrying it, but obscuring it so as not to make you feel bad. So as to be the friend that you wanted him to be, that you allowed him to be, to play that role in your life. So he could have some role in your life. He could still want more. There's only one way to find out if he still wants more is open to more. And that's to ask him. And it'll blow his mind. And there's just no way to be gentle about that. There's no way to subtly behave toward him in a different way. Because any signal you send that's subtle, where you're just trying to gently shift his perceptions, even if he perceives it, he's going to say, no, no, I'm misreading her. No, no, like I always say, he's probably been controlling for the last two years for dickful thinking and not trying to read into any of your behaviors a signal about interest in him in that way that you told him you weren't interested in him so as not to fuck up the friendship that you two have. So if you made any like little subtle shift, if you flipped your hair or you know wore something more revealing in front of him than you typically do or asked him out to dinner, you know, a kind of a restaurant that you typically don't go to with him or with friends – He wouldn't go, oh my God, this means she's in to me now in a way that she wasn't or didn't allow herself to be before. No, he's going to sit there and say to himself, don't go for it. She's not interested in you this way. She's only flipping her hair. We're only eating in this restaurant for some random reason that I'm not clear of, but I'm not going to allow my dick to self-servingly interpret this signal as a signal of interest and potentially ruin this friendship by making a move. 
you have to make the move. You have to not flip your hair, not gently shift perceptions. You have to drop the bomb. Tell him that two years ago, when you refused to date him, you were wrong and you realize that now. Luckily, the age gap has gotten no bigger in the last two years. So go for it. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how you feel now. Tell him how wrong you were two years ago to reject him and ask him if he might be interested in picking things up where you stupidly left things off. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight, basic white bitch living in the Midwest, and I am in my mid-30s. I actually am looking towards some advice on uh, what I should give to a friend who is about a decade younger than me. Um, This friend is working at the front lines of the pandemic, as much as I hate to say that term, and I don't uh, discount the amount of stress that he is under while working uh, directly with COVID patients, but he also just went through a breakup. Well, it's not just, it's been about six months and he has become obsessed with his ex. They only dated for about five or six months and he's always trying to talk about how much he hates her, how he wants to get back together, what a bitch she is, how she's probably out there being a whore and fucking other men, just like all this really alarming negative sexist language. He's really becoming the crazy ex that nobody wants to have. He's even reached out to her, her mother a few times to try to get back a scrapbook that they apparently made together. I can't really tolerate this behavior any longer because I'm also working in the front lines of the pandemic. And I am also would just like to provide some advice or a reality check for this guy to not be such a fucking creep because he will never be able to date again if he keeps up this behavior. What advice do you have for him? Your friend from work doesn't get a pass for this shitty, toxic behavior because he's got a stressful job. He needs help. He needs to speak to a professional. If you like him, you can take him by the shoulders, you can grab him and shake him, And you can say to him, look, everything about the way you're behaving now means she was right to fucking dump you. No woman would want to be with someone with your anger issues. You know, we talk a lot about toxic masculinity. Sometimes it's a little hard to define. This is textbook toxic masculinity shit. This kind of anger and rage after a relationship ends where he wants to get back together with her, but she's a bitch and a whore and he just can't get over it. Well, he's obviously going to need some professional help to get over it. And it should be enough for him to be motivated to get that help just so he's not a shitty person, but you can, and it might help if you made an appeal to his own self-interest going forward. No woman wants to be with a guy like him. Any woman who hears him raging about his ex is not going to want to be his current or future girlfriend. No woman is going to touch him with a 10-foot pole if this is how he talks about an ex. We are all potential future exes. When you meet somebody and you begin dating them, you are very likely their future ex because we date a lot of people. We have a lot of short-term relationships, serial monogamy, sometimes starter marriages. Most people that come into your life in a romantic sense or sexual sense aren't people that you're going to be with forever. So most people that you date are future exes. And anybody 
who hears you talking about your past partners in this kind of unhinged way, you should say this to this guy, is going to run from you. And if they don't run from you, well, then you should want to run from them because if they don't run from you, they obviously have no fucking judgment or sense. And you don't want to be with somebody with no fucking judgment or sense either. So, dude, this is what you need to tell them. You need to get some help processing what should be, you know, as unpleasant as getting dumped is a routine heartache, routine kind of trauma and getting past your anger and your rage. If for no other reason, then it's going to make you undateable. And any woman who hears you speaking this way about your ex is not going to want to have anything to do with you. And any woman who knows any woman that you begin dating, who's heard you speak this way about your ex is going to warn that woman not to keep dating you. Dude, get a grip, A, get some help, B, or you're not going to have a girlfriend ever again, and you won't deserve to have a girlfriend ever again. Before we get to listener tweets and response calls, we got so many responses from women with their suggestions for how to deal with recurrent UTIs, urinary tract infections, including using unlubricated condoms, switching condoms, not using condoms, using lube with Kareen, using water-based lube, taking a candida cleanse, quitting alcohol, giving up chocolate, not eating any kind of citrus, taking more vitamin C, giving up alcohol and or coffee, taking hip prex, getting tested for STIs, avoiding the missionary position, drinking lots of water, not shaving your pubes, getting an ozone bladder installation, and most popular by far, taking D-mannose, an herbal supplement. So obviously, this is an extremely common ailment and people have lots of different ideas and recommendations, too many for us to play them all or even really a representative sample of them all in one response roundup. But clearly, a lot of our listeners are suffering and need help or have suffered and want to help others. We want to help too. So we will be bringing on an expert very soon to talk about UTIs at length, and we will go over all of the various remedies out there. All right, let's read some tweets. At GTATS tweets, I recently learned about the Savage Lovecast through a match on a dating app. Even if it doesn't go anywhere, I'm happy to have gained a wonderful and important pod. We are just as happy to have you as a new listener, GTATS, and please pass my thanks on to your dating app match. At iNias tweets, if someone is shitty to waiters, they'll eventually be shitty to lovers. Wise words at fake Dan Savage. Anias Nee is quoting me in their tweet, so I'm quoting someone who's quoting me, but it's an important point that I want to emphasize. Someone who treats waiters like shit and bartenders and hotel maids and Uber drivers and pizza delivery guys and hairdressers, that person will eventually treat you like shit too. It's a lesson I learned the hard way and had to learn more than once. And finally, at Lie Tig tweets, solo New Year's Eve party this year, but that's okay. I got a snuggly pup, some bubbly, and a plan to play games online and a couple of episodes of the Savage Lovecast to catch up on. Fuck you, 2020. I will have a good time alone just to spite you. We're happy we could be part of your solo New Year's Eve celebrations, Lie Tig. Thank you for doing the right thing, staying home and keeping yourself and others safe. And a very happy new year to you and your cute pup too. And a big thank you to everyone who posted about the show on their social media accounts over the last week. We really do appreciate it. But remember, if you want me to read your tweet on next week's episode, you got to use the Savage Lovecast hashtag. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. This reply is for the woman in episode 740 who gets hassled by people about why she doesn't have children. I'm 55 and child-free by choice. 
Whenever people get too nosy about why I don't have children, I look them straight in the eye and say, you know, having kids isn't for everyone, but you aren't allowed to admit that after you've had them. I'm so glad not to find myself in that situation. That generally ends the annoying questions really quick. Hi, Dan. I was just calling with some feedback. For your caller who had called in on episode 740 and was concerned about her friend who is experiencing domestic violence uh, and his partner had strangled him, attempted to strangle him, um, strangulation increases the likelihood that a person's partner will kill them by a factor of 10. It is next to owning a firearm, one of the biggest predictors of domestic abuse leading to murder. And I just wanted to encourage her to find some resources for him, help him possibly get away before this situation gets even more tragic than it is. And I know it's hard, but there are resources out there and just someone who's strangling a person is, there's just no good that can come from that. Um, And I just hope everybody can be safe and get help. This is for the caller in episode 740 that was wondering whether her boyfriend, who's sweet, uh, if his alcoholism was a price of admission, babe, I have been there. I just, during quarantine, got out of a six-year relationship with someone I love very deeply, but who was an alcoholic like that. And I felt exactly what you were feeling. And I have to tell you, there were so many nights when I sat thinking about, you know, could I do this to fix him? Could I do that to fix him? And then in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, man, if I could only snap my fingers and be out of here and be settled in my new life, I would do it. Well, babe, I got to tell you, it's about six months later and I'm there. I'm where I wanted to be. I left him. It was awful and sad and weird and complicated. And there was a couple hairy months. But here I am in my apartment that I have all by myself, not worrying about anyone else. And I'm free. So if you need a sign that things are going to get better, here I am. And if you need a sign that you deserve better, here it is. And if you want a glimpse of what your future is, it's sitting in your apartment by yourself on a Tuesday night, absolutely and incandescently free. Go after it. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. The deadline for submissions to my Dirty Little Film Festival, Hump, is this Friday, January 8th. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out how to make a film. Some of the best films we've received over the years have been made at the last minute. And while there's a maximum length for Hump Films, five minutes max, there's no minimum length. We've featured films in Hump that were 30 seconds long. So if you've got a camera and you do, and there's something or someone you're passionate about, it's not too late to make a short film for Hump. And make sure you grab your tickets for Hump 2021, an all-new collection of films, some of which are being made right now as we speak. This year, there are a variety of viewing parties to join, including one with Hump Filmmakers, an all-nude viewing party, and one with me on opening night. There are lots of different showtimes, including a European and Australian screening, so go to humpfilmfest.com and find a showtime that works for you. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Joellen Naughty on Twitter at Joellen Naughty, which is spelled N-O-T-T. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy 
I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.